Adam Hefner is a principal at Avis & Young in Des Plaines, Illinois. He is a commercial real estate broker who specializes in industrial sales, leasing, development, and much more. We discuss his interest in real estate through college, as well as starting out in the industry cold calling as a first-time broker. We discuss his current position at Avis & Young, the industrial real estate market, as well as the important characteristics necessary to become a good salesman. Thank you for driving down the road to real estate. Enjoy the show. Hey, Adam. Thanks for joining the podcast. How's it going today? It's going great, Alex. Thanks for having me today. Looking forward to talking to you. No problem. I'm really excited. I know you have a lot of uh, experience in the brokerage industry. And uh, we can start off by talking about what has or um, what sparked your interest in real estate at a young age or during college or wherever you started. Uh, so I would say even you know pre-college, I always saw myself uh, wanting to have something to do with real estate, whether it be working or owning real estate. So that was always of interest to me. And I really fell into uh, real estate after college. I knew I wanted to go into some sort of a sales position. And I had a friend in this business who introduced me to the industry. And that was how I ended up starting in brokerage after college. Well, um, what, Within college, so you were a finance major, correct? Finance major, and and back in the day, I went to school down at U of I in Champaign, and the uh, I had a major in finance, and we called it concentrations in accounting and real estate. And out of those two, uh, I knew I gravitated a lot more towards real estate than I did to accounting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know the real estate curriculum at U of I isn't very prominent anymore. Uh, what kind of classes do you take at school? What do they know, consist of? It was learning how to analyze and underwrite investment transactions. So um, taking starting off with your potential gross income and working that down to net operating income, uh, looking at capitalization rates to put a value on a building. It was pretty simple calculations, but in our industry, knowing those simple calculations will set you ahead uh, and it's, you know, it, it's not rocket science. We'll put it that way. Being able to uh, look at a deal and analyze it and put a value on it, uh, figure out a mortgage, those types of things are not terribly difficult and they're extremely important to what we do every day. Mm-hmm. What kind of uh, internships did you have during college, if any? Uh, I did an internship with Northwestern Mutual Life, which was great training and on a day-to-day basis, very similar to what I did when I got into the real estate industry and I enjoyed it, but uh, I really wanted to sell a tangible. I I liked Northwestern Mutual Life, but you're you're really selling an intangible. And especially when you first get out of school, um, peddling life insurance to people that are your own age is not the easiest sell. And uh, real estate, I love the idea of being able to go out and look at it, touch it, feel it, and it's it's an actual tangible asset. Mm-hmm. And right out of college, you started work for Darwin Realty and Development? Correct. 
And uh, uh, what did you start out doing there? Brokerage, right out of school. So, you know, Darwin Realty and Development, in my opinion, has the best training program um, for industrial brokerage in Chicago. And it is very hands-on. I had a mentor by the name of Brian Liston, who now runs uh, an outfit called Value Industrial Partners. He trained me the first year in the business. And it is a, a typical sales job. It's dialing the phone. It's learning your market. It's getting in front of people and finding prospects that will eventually look at buildings and make offers on buildings and put buildings under contract and close and also working with tenants and people looking to buy land and develop new buildings. And we, I ran the gambit of any type of industrial real estate transaction possible I've done throughout my career. Mm -hmm. And you started out strictly doing underwriting, correct? Nope. Started out uh, immediately going into brokerage. So uh, making cold calls and trying to get meetings and get in front of people that were looking to either buy, sell, lease, uh, real estate. Okay, cool. So an entrepreneurial track uh, yeah. right out of college. Yeah, Darwin is a, it's a boutique shop. So uh, we specialized in industrial and most of the transactions that I did were in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And as you uh, at Darwin, uh, did you attain any new positions? So uh, over the course of being at Darwin, I uh, started off as an associate, was eventually named vice president, and then uh, finally director of brokerage services. So I, I turned into kind of a player coach. I spent still the vast majority of my time doing brokerage, but I also helped train new recruits and I ran sales meetings, um, helped recruit new talent into the organization and just tried to drive re revenue in general. Mm -hmm. How did you land on industrial right out of the bat? I, I had absolutely no idea what industrial real estate was. I didn't know the amount of industrial real estate that's in Chicago. I think we're north of 1.2 billion square feet of industrial real estate in Chicago right now. It's one of the largest markets in the country. Uh, I had a friend that was working at Darwin Realty. His name is Paul Thurston. He's at Becknell Industrial now. They're a developer. And I was looking at uh, stock brokerage jobs. Back in the day, it was Dean Witter and a couple of other uh, companies that I had offers from. But my friend encouraged me. He said, I know you're looking at sales positions. I've been doing this for a year. I think you'd really like it. You should come in and talk to these guys and interview. And that's really how I started learning about the industry. I fell into it. It was through a connection that I had in the business. Otherwise, I wouldn't have ended up in the career that I'm in right now. And what makes you love industrial out of all the other types of real estate? I could go on about this for, for a while. So cut me off if I, I get boring. But I, the first um, thing that I love about this industry is that every transaction is different. And like many other sales positions, you're, you're really solving problems. That's what you do for a living. But, you know, whether it's a sale or lease or an investment sale or ground up development, you're dealing with different personality types. You're dealing with different types of transactions and there's always different problems that need to be solved. So it, it's always challenging and it's always exciting. Uh, secondly, industrial over the course of my career, 
the the highs are usually not as high this market being the exception it's never been better right now to be an industrial real estate broker and we can get in, into that a little bit later um, the highs are not as high and the lows are not as low it's a little bit steadier so you can still make really good money without having to put in insane hours that you would in, in some of the other industries out there um, and you're usually when things are bad they're not as bad as they could be in commercial or an office and when things are good, you might not make quite as much money as those other brokers do, but you can still make a really good living doing industrial brokerage. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about this later in the podcast, but we might as well get into it now. Um, what makes, what makes, because you brought it up earlier, but what makes industrial uh, the hot uh, commodity right now in the real estate world? So I'm sure other people could name more things than this or would name more things than this, but the three main things that I'm seeing right now are number one, uh, our economy has changed and it's going to continue to change with more and more purchases made over e-commerce rather than in bricks and mortar retail. So as you see that retail footprint shrink, that product still needs to go somewhere and it ends up in a warehouse somewhere. So shrinking of retail causes increase in square footage in the industrial sector. Secondly, um, you saw over the pandemic, uh, I think e-commerce typically doubles every three to five years. We saw e-commerce double in the course of a year. We weren't sure if that was going to be sustainable, but that has been sustained. So that jump that should have taken three to five years took place in one year and it's staying at those levels and it's going to continue to grow. So e-commerce grows the industrial footprint, which, which grows demand for industrial. And third, also related to the pandemic, um, the fact that we've had, and, and we're still seeing major issues in the supply chain right now, the fact that people couldn't get toilet paper, the fact that we were running out of essentials has taught a lot of consumer products companies, retailers, et cetera, that while just in time might be the most efficient model and the, the most cost efficient model, it doesn't work when something like a pandemic happens. So a lot of these companies are, uh, they're keeping maybe 30 days of inventory on hand instead of just what they need just in time. And that's, if you look at that across the country and across all these huge companies, that's a tremendous amount of new demand for industrial real estate. And then, you know, one other thing, I'll, I'll, I will name a fourth thing. A lot of uh, the major retailers have learned that their retail supply chain can't fit in the same building as their e-commerce supply chain. So people are striving to catch up with Amazon, but they're realizing that they actually need to build almost a whole separate supply chain for their e-commerce arm than for their bricks and mortar retail arm. So those are all, those are four major factors that are driving huge amounts of demand in our industry. And we're in a place right now where developers, because of the issues with the supply chain, because of the increased cost for steel and the lead times needed for steel and for precast, it, they're having difficulty keeping up with the demand. So that's keeping the market supply tight and it is keeping vacancy low. It's driving lease rates and uh, buildings, at least in the Chicago market. And this is, I think, pretty universal around the country are being leased up pretty much as soon as they're built. 
as the uh, new construction of industrial buildings uh, increased immensely ever since post-COVID, or have people been trying to get older buildings and trying to lease up older buildings? So there's existing supply is very low. Our vacancy rates are very low across Chicago. Uh, so yes, people are looking to lease existing older buildings, but there's not very many that are available. And construction is having a hard time keeping up with demand because of what I just talked about. That's, those are two reasons that the supply is so tight right now. And I think developers, if the, the two hot areas in Chicago, and I, I don't know how, if this is the same in every other major market, but you have, um, call it I-80 corridor and some of the areas that are further out, uh, Southeast Wisconsin, the I-80 corridor, you have tremendous demand for the big million square foot plus boxes. Um, that's a hot area for developers right now. There is land down there, but it's still, it's getting tougher to find land that can be developed for industrial. And then infill, which in Chicago, I would say is inside of 294. Um, and that's for kind of the last mile touch, uh, delivering to the actual end user. Those are kind of the two hottest areas for new development. And it's extremely difficult to find land inside of 294 to build anything of size. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you can backtrack and talk a little bit about your position at uh, Avis and Young and what exactly you do. Okay. So uh, I've been at Avis and Young in, in June of 22. It'll be three years. And I'm a principal over here and I'm specialized in industrial brokerage. And our team, I work with a gentleman by the name of Zeke Rowan and Marty McKitis. And we specialize from, in the I-55 corridor from the city down to uh, call it Joliet, Manuka, Morris area, and then east on I-80 out to Northwest Indiana. We're spending most of our time, over half of our time on new development. So sourcing land sites that developers can come in, purchase the land, develop a new building, and then we help them on the back end to get at least some of those buildings are then sold on the investment market or in the capital markets with the, the terminology that we use. Some of those buildings are held by those investors. And then we spend probably 40% of our time doing product rep on existing buildings and tenant rep uh, or buyer rep with people that are looking to lease or purchase buildings. And then we also team up quite a bit with our capital markets team. Those are the gentlemen and ladies that specialize only in investment sales. So we support them with uh, market rents and help their um, potential buyers analyze the deals and make sure that they're underwriting them properly and offering the right amount of money for those deals. So from start to finish, if you can tell me what going through, let's say um, you're representing a seller. Uh, can you take us through the start to finish and what that looks like? Sure. So you're, your first step is to get an agency agreement signed. An agency agreement makes you the exclusive representative of the seller. And from that point on, um, you know, typically it's either the broker that's listing the building that finds a buyer or tenant or a cooperating broker comes in with the buyer or the tenant. Uh, you're going to start with a showing. That's always the first step. And if that prospect likes the building, 
The next step would be what we call a letter of intent. Letter of intent is a non-binding document that negotiates the basic business terms. So if it's a lease, your lease rate, your term of lease, free rent, um, you figure out what the expenses and operating expenses and taxes are going to be. There's usually going to be annual escalations on that rent, security deposit, et cetera. On a sale, it's going to be the purchase price of the building, the amount of earnest money that goes down, the time of due diligence where a buyer is going to inspect the property. And then uh, after the due diligence period, there'll be a period uh, before the property closes. So those are kind of the, the basic mechanics of, of how a lease or a sale would work. And then timing wise, our, our industry, it's tightened up because the market is so hot right now, but in a typical market, you would think that a lease or sale transaction from the time you put it on the market till the time you close it is probably going to take six to 12 months, somewhere in that range before the, the buyer or the tenant is actually in the building. Uh, cool. Um, uh, I was wondering, are you, are you an investor or do you deal with many investors uh, as a broker? Deal with investors all the time. Uh, our team is, is interested in investing and we look at transactions, but we're also, because we represent so many owners and developers, we have to be very choosy on what we look at. So we're not competing with our clients. Deal with any hedge funds or any big money companies that look to invest in real estate? Yeah. So we're, we do work with, with pretty much every major industrial um, REIT uh there we do business with uh, private companies that have private equity or high net worth individuals behind them. We do business with developers. Uh, just to name some of the companies, we do business with Crow. We do and that's Crow Holdings Industrial. We do business with Bridge. We do business with Prologis. Um, we've done business with any number of those companies, and we've worked with them on the acquisition side, where they're either buying a piece of land or buying a building, or we've worked on the agency side where they're helping, where we are helping them either get a building leased or sold. Mm -hmm. what, are you, what do you think some of the uh, traits that a, a beginning broker needs to be successful? Tenacity. Uh, you, need a, you need a good work ethic. You need to be able to get on the phone and, you know, it's be making phone calls, sending emails. People aren't always going to be nice. Most people are going to say no. You need to be able to get past that, not have that affect you um, and ruin your day because you're, my mentality has always been you're every call, you're one call closer to a prospect. And, and that's where you really get, um, you know, I'll call it a high, you know, finding that prospect, getting that prospect to get through a building, getting that prospect to make an offer, um, getting that transaction closed. Those are all different levels to the transaction that are, are going to give you excitement and kind of that adrenaline boost. And, and that's kind of what you live for. You live to make those transactions when you're in this business. Uh, but you're, it's, it's just about hard work. I don't care what industry you're in. Um, I don't care if you're in sales or not in sales. You need to get up every day and you need to go to work every day and if you stick with it and you listen to the people that are mentoring you, you're, you're going to eventually succeed. And 
in our business, as I said, it, it, you can make a really good living and not have to work crazy hours. I've got two children, two boys, 13 and nine. I'm able to spend time with them. I'm able to coach baseball for them. I'm able to hang out with them on the weekends. And, um, you know, there are some times when you're working at night or working on the weekends, but that's the other great part about our business is it's different from residential and that most most things happen during business hours during the week. So you're not spending a lot of time working at nights and you're not spending a lot of time showing properties on the weekends. And as a broker, you need to be an amazing salesperson, as you may know. Uh, what, what traits or what, what do you need really to become a good broker on the sales side of it? And why, why would a potential investor want to work with you instead of a different broker? So you need to know your product and, and the way that I, I think is most effective is for you to start in a particular, Chicago is such a big market. There's, there's two things you need to do. Number one, I would specialize in a discipline, meaning either office, industrial, retail, or capital markets. I wouldn't try to be a jack of all trades because the market's just too big to learn more than one discipline and you need to start in one particular submarket, and you need to know every building and you need to know every owner and every tenant and you need to know how big the buildings are and how old the buildings are and it takes time but that's what's going to get people to trust you and want to work with you is your market knowledge and with market knowledge we'll start you'll start building your track record because you'll start making transactions happen so with market knowledge and a track record um, that's what's going to set you apart from competitors and what's going to make an owner or an investor or a user work with you, no matter what they're, they're looking to do. So when I say learning a market, I mean, driving it on the weekends and, you know, having a map made with aerial, you know, an aerial map made of the markets that you're working and legitimately knowing every single building in your market and who's in there and when their leases expire, et cetera. And as a young broker uh, coming out of college, what were some of the different uh, things you picked up that made you be, get more investors to answer phone calls, to get more showings, uh, stuff like that? Quantity. With quantity comes quality because you become more comfortable. I mean, I, I would say one of the best pieces of advice is which I didn't get coming out of college is that it's really just another social setting. You know, you're, you start off in preschool, you go to grammar school, you go to high school, you go to college. Um, yes, it's a different environment, but it's all the same. You need to be yourself. You need to be confident. Uh, you need to be tenacious and you need to just pick up that phone or go door to door and get in front of people. And the more you get in front of people, the more confident you will become. And the better you will become at speaking with strangers about, you know, trying to get in there to make a large transaction with them. And a lot of it is also um, repetition, right? It, it takes sometimes four, five, six, seven, 10 times of calling someone up and having a conversation with them. They're going to start to get to know you. They're going to start to trust you. And next time they're looking to make a transaction, they're going to think about you and you're going to hopefully have an opportunity to go pitch it and win it from somebody else. But more, more importantly than all of that is mentorship. You need to have someone like me, someone that's 
older in the business that has experience that can come with you as a young person, man or woman to a meeting and guide you. And also that's going to lend credibility to you as a 22 or 23 or 25 year old that you have support and you have someone that has experience that's going to guide you and help you through that transaction. Mm. And that, and you know, that shouldn't be a year that should be three to five years of training that you're getting from someone who has experience and knows what they're doing. And if it, you know, if that continues into a long-term partnership, great. If not, you've at least got the experience level and the track record that you can go on and do your own thing or, or build a new partnership with someone else or a group of other people. And uh, another question I had was from an investor's mindset, other than industrial, what other types would you be getting into as of now if you were an investor? You, you broke up a little bit there. What other investments? What other property types would you invest in as of now besides industrial? So I'm a big believer in doing what you know. I know industrial. So if I were to invest in any other property type, I would want to be partners with someone that is in that space. Um, you know, right now, I think everybody knows that, that residential is hot. Multifamily is hot. Uh, office and commercial, not so much, but I don't think that's a forever thing. I think that those, uh, those sectors will come back. And I think it now could be a good time to buy in those areas if you're buying them properly. But my advice is that if you're going to go into another sector that you don't know, you have the right representation, the right partnership with someone who knows that space and is not going to allow you to make a mistake. And I know a lot of people would say that at right now, there might be a large bubble, a real estate bubble that a lot of people don't really think of because we haven't really had a crash since 2008, a major crash. And it's just been riding up. The prices of properties have been riding up. What do you think the future looks like as for the real estate market? So as someone that makes their money 100% commission, I'm an, I'm an eternal optimist when it comes to this. But I also mm -hmm. look at the fundamentals. So I look at Chicago going into the last downturn on the industrial side and the I-55 South Corridor, which is Romeoville, Bolingbrook. If any, anybody's ever driven down there, they know what I'm talking about. It's one of the hottest industrial markets in Chicago. Um, I think the vacancy rate back then was probably in the 12 to 14% range. Now it's maybe in the 10% range, which is actually a little bit of an oddball for Chicago right now. It's got the highest vacancy uh, out there. And then the, the I-80 corridor, which we talked about a little earlier, which is Joliet, um, New Lenox, those areas along I-80, Morris, Manuka, uh, they were vacancy rate in that market going into the last downturn was in the high teens. It's less than 5% right now. So from a fundamental standpoint, and then we also know what's going on with e-commerce and, um, you know, consumer goods and retailers taking more space and the potential for manufacturing to continue reshoring because of the issues with the supply chain. From that perspective, we see continued demand. So I don't think there's a bubble on the industrial side, at least not yet, because of those factors. Um, but it's always a possibility. Usually when there's a major downturn or a major 
drop in the economy. It's for reasons that very few people see, and it's a surprise. I know you guys do a lot of uh, leasing. Uh, how do you find uh, potential companies to lease the spaces that you're showing? What's the process of that? You so we we as a company are are more strategic than that, right? I mean, you're as a as a broker, your first calls are always going to be the neighbors because you know. Let's I'll give you a for instance. Let's say that you're a, a heavy manufacturing company and you have millions of dollars of equipment inside your building and you're out of space. Um, if there's a building next door that you can purchase and you don't have to move your existing operation, that's always going to be your best bet. Cause some of these manufacturers, it can cost them millions of dollars to move into a new building. So, you know, kind of starting in the direct vicinity of the building and working outward is a strategy that we use, but we also will look at the underlying real estate and say, Hey, this building has, uh, a very heavy amount of power and it has cranes and what types of industries would be attracted to that. So then you can start um, being a little bit more strategic and in calling industries that you think would make sense for that property. And you're to, to again, just to simplify it, you're, you're finding a strategy for the types of people that you should be calling. And then you're calling those people and you're sending them the brochure on the building. You're also sending out the marketing material on the building to competing firms because their brokers are usually running with tenants and buyers as well. So you're making them aware that it's out there. You're putting a sign on the building. You're putting the building on an MLS. Um, you may see users actually going on the MLS to look at it themselves. If not, their broker will see it. Uh, so there's, there's a, you're talking to economic development uh, organizations for the town, the county, et cetera. Uh, you can advertise in newspapers, you can advertise on the internet. I mean, there's, there's many, many different ways, but the, you know, the bottom line is you are trying to get a property in front of as many possible people to find the right person that wants to buy or lease that property. Mm -hmm. And one of my, uh, for all the listeners out there, one of my friends, Nick, uh, worked for you this past summer. And I was just wondering, what was some of the advice you, advice and what, what did you instill in him uh, in order to become a successful broker? It's a lot of the stuff that we talked about. It, it's taking direction and it is working hard and it's showing up every day and not getting discouraged. You know, you're... I think to be any type of salesperson, you do need to be optimistic. You need to understand that not everybody is going to say yes. You need to understand that getting to a point where you are making a good living in sales, it's going to take time to get there. Um, and I, th that's really all my advice is, you know, you're work hard, listen to the people that are training you show up every day. Um, don't go out every night drinking, which uh, you know, in, uh, in college, I, I don't know if everybody's going out every day and drinking, but I know that they're going out a lot. You know, you want to get a good night's rest and you want to get up early and you want to tackle your day early The you know, the best times to be productive are before everybody else gets in and after everybody else leaves. So when you're starting off, you're, you're getting in the office early, you're leaving late and you're doing the things that you're supposed to be doing, doing during business hours. Yeah, Repetition. I completely agree with that. 
Yeah. Repetition, scheduling, scheduling your day, um, you know, making sure that you're, it's, it's not going to be the same every day. It's impossible in sales, but you know, you're setting aside a certain amount of time every day to make your, your contacts and cold calls, whether it's door to door or email or telephone or a combination of the above or networking events. Um, you know, you're, you're trying to set up your meetings maybe during the, the middle of the day, and then you're doing more sales work in the afternoon and your follow-ups and uh, thank you notes with the people that you've talked to. And uh, it's just about touches, constantly touching people, touching as many people as possible, and then also following up with those people. And I, and I cut you off. What were you going to say? Yeah. The one thing that I, I think is really important to instill in the younger people is uh, the first one in last one out mentality. Uh, the most productive times of the day is like you said, before people get in and after they leave. So, yeah. yeah unless, unless it's the bar, that's the right mentality. Yeah, exactly. And the last question I have for you is, and I know we've kind of gone over a lot of this stuff, but if you could tell your 18 year old self, one thing, what would it be with, with the knowledge you have now? So, I'm extremely happy with the path that I've been on. I really like my job and especially through this cycle, it's been incredibly exciting, but um, I'd say I would have looked around a little bit more and I really like the capital market side or the investment side of the business. So that maybe would be the only thing I would have done differently because I am a numbers guy at heart. I like to run the numbers. I like to work on those types of transactions. Um, so that would maybe be the only thing I would do differently. And then I would also say to an 18 year old that's going to college, uh, get as good a grades as you can. Don't mess around. Like you, you have plenty of time to have fun in college. Make sure you go to your classes, make sure you keep up every day, go to the library for a couple of hours, get your work done for that day. So you don't get backed up and you're going to have, uh, A's and B's, you're going to be on the dean's list. And then you really will have, when you're done with school, an opportunity to do whatever you want to do. You know, keeping your options open in life is the most important thing. And excelling in college is your first step to having a very wide array of options for after school. And remember <laughs> your your work life. I've been doing this for almost 23 years. I'm still, you know, I... I We'll probably be doing it for another 20 more, even if I'm not doing exactly what I'm doing now. Um, you're working for a lot longer than you're in school. So if you bust your ass in school, it's going to make your life better for the majority of your life. Work is the majority of your life. Well, Adam, thank you for being on the show. Is there, a, is there any way that the listeners could contact you or find you on LinkedIn or social media or anything? Yeah. If you Google me, you can find me. It's Adam. Last name is Hefner. H-A-E-F as in Frank, N-E-R. And I work at a group called Avis and Young. You can find me if anybody has any questions, if anybody wants to talk about the industry. I'm happy to take phone calls. If you're in Chicago, I'm happy to grab a cup of coffee with you. And uh, you can call me anytime. Well, thanks again. Thank uh, you. Have a, have a good one. You too.